So I want to welcome you guys here. Uh, if this is your first time. I'm Brian, one of the pastors. Um, we are going to actually start a new series today in the book of Ephesians. So if you guys want, you can open up right there. Um, I'm going to actually use a stool today to teach on. I'll tell you why. Um, if you were here last week, um, i give you guys a little bit of an update on uh, my health. Um, if you weren't, um, um, hopefully you're part of the Calvary Slow uh, Church Facebook page. Uh, I sent out a little update last night, kind of sharing a little bit about what's happening. Um, so I'm sitting down, basically, and Troy has to do with my, my vocal cords. I got some issues with my vocal cords that um, I'm going to need a little bit of a surgery done beginning of February to renew, move uh, a little bit of a growth on there, and they're going to biopsy it, and everything's going to kind of go from there depending upon what's happening. So I'm sitting on a chair basically to fool my vocal cords into thinking that I don't need to yell. Um, otherwise, I get too excited and I yell, so this is sort of me tricking myself. So if you're like, why is he sitting down? It's, I'm, I'm living in deception right now, trying to trick myself. <laughs> So, um, anyhow, that's what's happening. <clears throat> we're going to um, look at the book of Ephesians in just a second. But, um, so in short, we're going to be starting this great book. Um, I'm going to basically be launching us out, and my aim today is to really kind of build a little bit of a framework. So if you think of it this way, we'll be uh, flying 36,000 feet above uh, the book of Ephesians and really just trying to do an overview briefly. And the idea behind this is to sort of chart a course, sort of set a direction uh, or to build a framework that, uh, choose your analogy, there you go, you like that? Um, chart a course, so that's navigational. Build a framework that's uh, architectural. What was the other one I gave? You guys paying attention? <laughs> Anyways, you get the idea that over the next several uh, weeks and months, uh, we're going to be having a team of teachers that will be teaching because I won't be able to talk um, during the time of uh, recovery. <clears throat> and so I think you guys will have some great teachers uh, that will be bringing you guys God's word. Um, one of the things I've been encouraging you guys uh, from last week as well as weeks prior, but also as well from that little update that I shot out. So seriously, like if you, if you want to kind of know what's happening with regard to uh, Calvary So and the church and so on, definitely encourage you to go uh, like the Facebook page. It's kind of a way. We don't spam you. We try really carefully to not, you know, just throw a bunch of information uh, superfluous information upon you guys. So uh, jump onto that, and it's a way to kind of keep in, um, formed. But what we will be having are some good, gifted teachers that will be bringing you guys uh, God's Word uh, in the book of Ephesians. So <clears throat> the real thing is that we're just asking to, to show support for them, to be praying for them, encouraging them um, as they prepare and teach you guys God's Word. And it's easy oftentimes in the little update that I shot out last night that it's too easy to kind of build um, upon a framework of personality. You know, I realize some of you may have, you know, joined this church or be part of this family, this fellowship, because you particularly like a particular speaker, in this case myself. And with me not being able to speak uh, for the next uh, several weeks, uh, obviously that might create a little bit of a challenge. But what I want to challenge and push back a little bit with you guys is that God wants to speak to you. He loves you. And he has messengers to bring you guys God's word, and it's what Paul is actually look at. We'll look at in the book of Ephesians that he gives pastors and teachers, uh, and evangelists, and so on and so forth to equip the saints. That's you guys to do the work in the ministry. And so, if you guys come on Sundays as we gather with the intention of hearing from God, God will speak to you. And that also, by the way, applies anywhere you go, any church you go to. 
Um, when I first planted the church, I was 23 years old. And I remember often I would get people that would come to church and be like, that guy's young. He knows nothing. And the crazy thing is that they were absolutely correct in their assessment. And the problem is, is that where they were wrong is that they assumed that because I was young, because I knew nothing, there was nothing that God could teach through me. The reality is, is that God has the ways, God has the ability of using even donkeys to speak profound prophetic messages. He does it in the Old Testament. God will speak through anybody. So that's my little encouragement to you to uh, definitely keep praying for, show support for those that will be teaching and bringing God's uh, word to you guys faithfully week in and week out um, on Sunday mornings. So the idea behind that is to equip you guys, to prepare you. Sunday mornings is not all that we are about on Sunday mornings it's just, uh, as a church. It's just simply not. Um, but it is an important part. It's a part in which we gather. And the reason why we do this is because we gather to remind ourselves afresh and anew of what God is up to in the world and what God is up to in San Louis and what God is up to in our lives what he's doing. The reason why is because we often forget. We slip into sort of the catatonic, the catatonic state where we forget. We slip into coma. We forget what God's doing. We need to be reminded or we live in deception or denial. And so what the, what the gospel does week in and week out, it reiterates. It retells the story of what God's doing. And that brings us back to repentance. It brings us back to renewed faith and confidence in God. And that's what we need. So that as we go back into the rest of our lives, you know, six days a week, uh, that we are taking the gospel with us everywhere we go. I was just reminded of this, uh, I'm telling little stories here. Uh, my wife and I have sort of this weekly schedule. Every single Saturday we go to Farmer's Market down at, uh, you know, Madonna Plaza, I guess is what they call it. It's just kind of our, our, our weekly deal. And, and we, we love it. It's kind of our little date time. Sometimes our kids join us and we do it all together. And it's just something we love to do. And it's, it was, I was walking back from there the other day, yesterday, uh, yesterday, and just I was reminded of the fact that, you know, in reality, we're just living life. Like, living life everywhere we go. Like, whether it's, you know, go buy fresh tomatoes for three fifty a pound or whatever the case is. Like, our aim is just to live life. And in living life, we're going to be rubbing our shoulders with people around us that are hurting and broken. And that becomes the opportunity of unpacking the gospel. Not just simply in word. Of course, it comes in occasions of word, but also comes in just deed of demonstrating. By the way, maybe the way I, I, I treat my wife in public as opposed to humiliating or speaking down or condescendingly to her. To show her that I, to sh- to I, that I love her, but also as a sort of a model or demonstration of what it looks like to a world that just doesn't understand that. I mean, I think we'd all agree that we live in a culture and a society that somehow has gotten those roles messed up, that most sitcoms, most shows that portray any form of family life, the dad always is portrayed as an idiot, right? All the time. I mean, Homer Simpson is not a genius. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Is that, like, that's the typical world in which we live in. And, you know, the, the point that I'm making is that we're called to just live our lives. But to do that, we're called to live our lives with intention with the gospel influencing and informing the way that we live our lives. And that's one of the reasons why we gather here on Sundays and one of the reasons why we encourage people to get involved in small groups because we are regularly forgetting all these things. So that's it. We're going to jump into the book of Ephesians right now. 
and what I want to do before we begin to even uh, jump into the actual passage of the book itself, which we will in a moment, and just I have to forewarn you, we are only going to get one verse into this entire book. So we're not going to go very far, and like I said, the main, my, main goal, my, my main goal this morning is not to do an exposition uh, too profoundly. It's just to simply do a 36,000 uh, above uh, this entire thing to get a bigger picture of what's happening. So what I want to do is I want to give you sort of a, a, a perception of what I think is happening here in and throughout as a theme throughout this great book. And like I said, over the next several months and weeks, uh, we will have other teachers that will begin to build this out to inform us as these things begin to take place throughout the remainder of the book. So um, I want to pray, and part of praying is not only asking God to help us, but also it's a way of helping me to remind myself. I've got to, I've got to calm myself down a little bit here, otherwise my voice probably won't make it throughout this whole thing. So God, we just thank you for grace. We thank you for your kindness that is here. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that informs us, that brings life to words on a page, brings life to our hearts, it causes dead bones to arise. God, that's what we want this morning. Uh, Help us, we pray. We commit our time. Help my voice, Lord, to uh, stay calm, stay within a zone that does not begin to aggravate it. Um, God, give me strength. Uh, uh, what, what voice I have, I, wanna, I want it to be able to be used for you in this time. And um, So help me. Uh, help us, God, to have, because we all have ears. Um, so God, my responsibility is, my desire is to want to use my voice. All of our rest, responsibilities in this case is to have ears that hear, uh, to listen that we might be changed and transformed. So we commit this time in your hands. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So I'm just going to jump right off and say, I think where Paul is going in this entire book is that Paul's agenda, Paul's theme, and I would even say Paul's fuel for praise, is God who brings life to where there is nothing but death. And I think if you look at that framework, that begins to fit throughout the entire book, that Paul rejoices. In fact, there's moments when Paul's writing this book where Paul probably, he had some form of what's called an amanuensis, which is Paul would speak, this guy would kind of write things down, jot the whole thing down, write down. So um, there, it seems as if there are moments when Paul is writing this where it's almost as if he just stops, like put the pen down. I need to praise Jesus. Like I, I need to sing some songs. I need to, I need to just meditate upon the greatness of God because what, I, what was just written down is huge. I think there's something to be said about that, that whatever it is that Paul is writing about um, really is fuel for radical, life-changing worship and honor and praise back to God. And so um, Paul is really highlighting the fact that we have a God that brings things back to life that were dead. That, of course, is contrasted with the world in which we live in. And what I mean by that is that the world in which we live in is a world and a society and a system of decay and death. That is the world in which we live in, by the way. Um, That's one of the reasons why we can turn on the news and regularly see death and decay. Those two things working together constantly. It's one of the reasons why um, we are always dealing with that within movies or media or conversations that we oftentimes have. But here's the oftentimes what we typically do as a humanity is that we live in a 
perennial state of denial. We don't want to face the fact of death or decay or that things are breaking down or letting us down. So what we do is we live in a status of denial where we turn our minds onto something else. Uh, you know, some turn to all sorts of other poisons. Some might turn to meth. Some might turn to drugs. Some might turn to shopping. You know, confessions of a shopaholic. You got lots of money or you think you have lots of money or you got a, you got a credit card, let's just say, that has a high limit. So you go out and you sort of numb yourself. You live in a status of denial to sort of remove all of the potential decay and death that are around you. Some eat lots of food. It's a form of denial. We turn to all sorts of things to just simply deny the fact that there is decay and death all around us. And what Paul does is he is neither a pessimist, meaning just simply like, woe is me, life is horrible, everything's going down the tubes, nor is he an optimist in the sense of, Everything's wonderful. Isn't it great? Just turn your frown upside down into a smile and everything will be wonderful like Pollyanna. Like, like Paul is not like that. Paul is a realist. He realizes that there is decay and death in this world and it's profound. But he also realizes that it is not the final word. It's not the final thing. That there is a God who is in the business, who is in the work taking things that are dead and making them alive. I love the fact that almost every song we sang this morning, if you thought this or saw this, um, maybe not. I was probably already thinking about it because I already preached this message once. But um, almost every single song we sang this morning had that theme. Um, Darren and I normally don't ever sit down and be like, okay, what are you preaching on? Like, I'm preaching on this. Like, okay, cool. I'll sing songs. Like, that correlate with that. God just did that. That the songs that we, often, that we were singing this morning were just about God bringing life to those areas which are dead. And this is profound. Because in this world that we live in, that to some degree recognizes and identifies the fact that there is or various degrees of death and decay. Even though we don't like to meditate upon that too long, so therefore we kind of slip into denial mode. We realize that we want to somehow undo that death and decay. It's one of the reasons why we live in a culture that is hyper uh, in love with youth. The idea that you can look young even when you're 60 years old. I saw this picture, video or something like that was thrown around on Facebook, you know, of like 70-year-old yoga teacher, you know, she's got the body of a 30-year-old. Like we are infatuated with youth, you know, having injections of toxins in your face to remove wrinkles because we have to look young. Taking a purple pill that gives you the virility of an 18-year-old, right? We are absolutely infatuated in love with this eternal sense of youth because we are overwhelmed with the fact that we know that just around the corner is decay and death. But we live in a status of denial. But what the gospel does is it says, yes, there's decay and denial all around us. But God has a word that is beyond that word. And so what Paul is going to begin to do is unpack throughout this great book how that God has done this. So we'll take a look at a handful of things. One, we'll take a look at God is basically bringing several things to life. And this is the great thing. So if you think of it this way, you might ask the question, why are things dead? Well, if you look at Genesis' account, God tells this story, or Moses tells this story about God, God creating all things. 
And then in the process of the garden, God has this dialogue with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve ultimately sin. You know the story. And then as a result of that, there's a process of death and decay. That creation turns against Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve turn against Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve turn against God. And that there's nothing but this breakdown. Decay and breakdown begin to define the human race as we know it. And this is the world in which we live in. So what God is doing is he's fighting against, or what he's done, I should say, through Jesus, is he's fought against the forces of anti-creation. He's undoing death, and he's undone death through Jesus. And he's continuing to undo death through the church. And what Paul is absolutely blown away by in this book, in the story that he begins to unpack, is how God is going to begin to do this, or how God has actually, I should say, launched this project on planet Earth. So we'll take a look at a handful of things. One, we're going to see that creation will come alive. Creation will come alive. Correct, uh, currently, um, creation is in a status of continued decay and death. Paul doesn't unpack a lot of this theme in the rest of the book of Ephesians. He has another book. If you look at the book of Ephesians, it's only like six chapters. If you look at, for example, the book of Romans, it's a lot. And Paul says a lot more in the book of Romans. And so Paul really doesn't say much about the fact of creation being brought back to life or coming to life again. Uh, he reserves a lot of that in Romans chapter 8, for example. So what Paul says here, I think, is going to hint at a broader theological underpinning in the book of Romans chapter 8. But here's what Paul does say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. He starts off, he says, he made known to us the mystery of his will. And the idea of a mystery is something that was formerly or previously unknown, now has been made known. He says, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan from the full, for the fullness of time. And here's what it says it is. God's plan, which before no one ever really knew about, was hidden, no one knew what was going to happen. But in this time, God has revealed it to us. And here's what God's doing. Here's what God is up to. He is uniting all things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this is somewhat shocking that God is actually uniting these things, which indicates the fact that currently they're in a status of opposition. Currently, they're in a status of denying each other or one is denying the other. And we have actually, in a lot of ways, at least in the Westernized church, have sort of bought into the theological presupposition that says the ultimate thing that God is doing in this world is he's coming into this world to save you and then one day to swipe you from planet earth to take you away to heaven. And this has been sort of common teaching that has been prominent. So the point of the matter is, is that, again, I'm not gonna, this is not a teaching on heaven, but when you die right now, if you were to die, you would go to a temporary state, temporary place. We could call that heaven. That's fine. It's a temporary place. It's not eternal. It's not where you will spend eternity. It is the spot of just temporary place. The whole aim of creation is that God is working to undo the forces of anti-creation to restore and rebuild, renew all of creation. That's why the book of Revelation, chapter 21, John has this vision and he sees the new Jerusalem come down from heaven to planet earth. It's one of the reasons why Jesus himself says, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's one of the reasons, finally, why when Jesus died, or I should even say, step back a few 33 years before that, when Jesus came into this world, he didn't come as an apparition or as a ghost or as a vision. He came as a baby, as a human body, in human form. When Jesus 
died and rose again. He didn't rise again in a phantom-like body. He rose again in a physical body. That's significant. What that tells us is that when creation, this physical, tangible world in which we live in, which you and I live and breathe and have our being, we buy things, we sell things on eBay, we listen to music, we create art, we build buildings, we mow our lawns, we go fishing, we do all of these things, we surf, good waves, Every once in a while on the Central Coast, like I did a couple days ago. We have unbelievable experiences in this world because God created it. The idea that somehow God will one day swipe Christians away from this earth to remove them from this planet. To take them off into some ethereal, non-tangible or intangible place of existence is not biblical teaching. But the story is, is that God is working to unite heaven and earth so that one day a new Jerusalem will come down to earth and God will restore that which is broken on this earth. It's absolutely amazing. By the way, this has not happened yet. All right? Just in case you're wondering. This is not like utopia. It's happened. God is working. He's begun. In fact, it's one of the reasons why Paul uses a phrase of Jesus when he rose again. He says that Jesus is the prototype. We get the English word prototype. And you know, if you have ever done any form of manufacturing or build out, you know that you need some sort of a model, a prototype of what is to come down the rest of the line. Paul uses the language to describe Jesus being the prototype. In other words, what happened at the resurrection when Jesus came into life again in a physical body, God will one day restore this earth in its fracturedness, in its brokenness, in its corruption to a status of incorruptibility. Where it will never die, will will never be, it won't be controlled by the forces of corruption and decay and death. God will liberate it, He will set it free. Again, this has not happened yet. But what we as Christians have the opportunity to do now is to demonstrate to the world around us that we live in this physical world, that God hasn't abandoned this world, but He's come to restore it. And this is why, for example, this is why uh, things like art. And education and science and all these things actually matter. These are, these are ways of observing the creation that God's, create, that God's given to us. It's one of the reasons why God cares about these things. If you're a teacher, for example, it's a good thing that you invest your life in people. Because they're made in the image of God. They're physical. Not that God's physical. God's spirit. But they bear God's image. They matter. God loves this earth. This planet, but because it's sick, it's broken, God has a plan to restore it. And Paul just alludes to this in chapter 1, verse 10, whereby he says that here's what God's up to in this universe. He is in the process of restoring this broken, fractured, destroyed, sick earth back to what it once was. So, second thing that we see is that humanity is coming alive. So all creation is coming alive. Secondly, we see that humanity is coming alive. And the way God is doing this is that God and sinner are coming together. Again, just like God bringing creation back to life, coming to life, heaven and earth come together. The second thing that we see is that humanity is coming alive and that this is by way of God and sinner coming together. Which implies that in the current status, man is not in line with God. Man has removed himself from God. 
like creation, uh, it's just fallen under this curse, like Paul says in Romans, that mankind has fallen under this curse, that mankind has basically turned his back on God and says, God, you remain upstairs, you remain in heaven, let us take care of our domain down here. We don't need you every, except once in a while when there's some sort of tragedy that befalls us, we'll call upon you. What God is saying is that he's really making all things new to come back to life by working in the hearts of men and women that have basically, for the most part, removed God from their lives by God breaking back into their lives, by saying, no, no, really what you need is me. Because every other avenue that you've taken in your life has always led onto a path of decay and death. It's one of the reasons why he begins to, throughout the New Testament, he'll give these little lists of sins, right? Uh, Sometimes evangelical Christians love to emphasize these little sins. I like to describe them as the fruits, the fruit, even though fruit's maybe not the best word, the works of the flesh is the way that Paul often has described it. But think of it as the fruit as opposed to the root. What Paul is doing here, he's basically saying, in order for God to begin to remove the bad fruit from our lives, we've got to deal with the root. And the way that God is going to do this is by bringing life, once again, to the root that is producing the bad fruit, the sins. This is the amazing thing about what God does. He is not just simply making us better people. He's making us new people. God's aim is not to just simply somehow take your bad behavior and change that behavior to modify it to make you a better person. That's, this is where religion and the gospel really collide and conflict. That religion may say, go to church, get involved in the Bible study, memorize scripture, buy a Bible, whatever, do all these things, and somehow, by the application of these things, you'll become a better person. You'll have less sex with the opposite sex. You'll have less sex with the same sex. You will have less bad attitudes. You will do all these things less. You'll become a better person by way of your behavior. But the Bible basically says, no, no, no. Look, if if all you focus on is the externals, you've never really changed the heart. And that's the problem. Our hearts need to be changed. Religion can somehow maybe make you act better, but the gospel changes who you are as a human being into a different person. It changes you fundamentally from the inside out. So that what you love, rather than being centered upon your own agenda, it shifts. So now you begin to love God. In fact, that's what a Christian is. And I'll read this to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. handful of verses uh, we'll look at in here. It says this. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And you were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And he says, by grace, you are saved. So the way that God had intervened is not by us doing good works in which God looked at our good works and good actions and thought, oh, it's a great person. He'll make a great candidate to enter into my church because he reads his Bible all the time. I'll save him. That's not how God works. What God does in his working is he says, I will come to them who are unlovely, who are broken. If you were with us during any amount of time that we were looking through the book of Hosea, you realize that this is what God did with the nation of Israel. When God 
was looking for a nation, when God was calling a nation that was going to be his redemptive community, part of his redemptive plan to bring redemption, to bring restoration, to basically work as sort of an outpost, demonstrating or a model of what it's like if a nation were to follow uh, Yahweh, Israel was to be that model nation. And what God did is, the description is, is that when the people of Israel, for example, when he called them, were in the state of um, Egypt, or in the place of Egypt, uh, he describes them as basically being like a prostitute or a young woman in a state of just having been gang raped. Her, t- her clothes were torn. Her face was all messed up. Her hair was disheveled. Her make was all dis- distorted. She had open wounds that were pussy and bloody, sitting on a street corner, getting ready to give herself to another man. We have this tendency to think that God only accepts the best of the best. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is that God takes not the lovely, he takes the unlovely, so that by his power and might, he can then make you lovely. That's what he did with Israel. He took this unlovely, unlovable nation that was broken and ruined in this status of disgustingness. And yet God says, I will take them, love them, clothe them, bathe them, wash them, disinfect them, and I will make them my beautifully treasured bride whom I love. That's what God does with our lives. That's what Paul is saying here. And guess what the price tag on it is? Free. You can't earn it. It's a gift he gives to you. This is what he does. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, it says, for by grace uh, you have been saved through faith, confidence, trusting who God is. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Verse 9, he says, not a result of work so that you may boast. Because if it was on our own end, if it was because we were lovely, it was because we were great, then we can boast of that. But God says, no, it's not because of your works that you could boast. He says, verse 10, it's a great verse, uh, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what Paul's going to say now, here's what God has done, is that God is actually causing humanity to come to life, causing humanity to come alive. In other words, he's taking sinner and uniting them or coming together, bringing sinner together with God. Not because sinner was seeking after God, but because God was actually seeking after the sinner. God was actually pursuing them. And in this unbelievable act of grace of what God was doing, he says, I didn't save them because of their works, but I saved them so that in, as they come to me, they will actually do good works. Did you pick up on that? A little bit of a juxtaposition going on now. On one hand, he's saying, you're not saved by works, but once you're saved, you will do good works. So the distinction is is that those that are in Christ, the reason why good works oftentimes are to be emphasized, and to be quite frank with you, I mean, we have a Protestant tradition, and the Protestant tradition comes out of the Catholic tradition, which tends to focus oftentimes upon good works, and there's a the idea that oftentimes salvation comes through being good or doing good works, so there has been a tendency within Protestant circles to de-emphasize good works. But the reality is that if you're in Christ and God has rescued you, good works will be the outflow. Let me say this as well. Good works that he's describing here are not just simply good moral works. So, for example, if you're a guy, you meet Jesus, you look at porn less. 
And that's really good that you're doing. That's awesome. That means you're being liberated and you are doing things that are less destructive to you. That is, a, that is definitely a good work of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. But it's, it's, it's not less than that, but it's even greater than that. That the good works that God is going to flow through you are works that are outward. Works that demonstrate love and kindness to those around you. Works that look like what God has done to you. Works that look like us in Christ going to the unlovely to make them lovely. Us in Christ going to the marginalized. The ones whom everyone has rejected and written off in society and in culture to love them, to help them just like God did for you and I. Those are the good works that Paul talks about. The works of forgiveness, where the society and culture which we live in, one of decay and death, by the way, that says, hold on to your grudge. You deserve to be mad at them. Remember what they did to you? Hate them. Hate them with all your heart. But God would say, do you understand that that path is a path of decay and death? Be free, be liberated is what the gospel says. But once you're free and liberated, it goes a step further and it says, you know how free you can be? You, are, you can be so free that you can actually forgive them. That's unheard of. That's an unheard of script in our culture, in our society. And every once in a while, when it just simply brushes the edge of the stage and we see it, we catch a little bit of a glimpse of it in the news, Gets thrown on Facebook for a little bit, and people are like, oh my gosh, did you hear about that guy? You know, he was forgiven. And you're like, people are shocked by that, because that is not a storyline that we are familiar with in our culture. And every once in a while, when it comes into view, everybody stops for a moment. They're like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if that's the way culture worked? And here's what God is saying. I'm remaking a new society. I'm remaking a new humanity, new people that will live like that, a new community of people that will function and flourish like that. So if you think of it this way, a Christian, you and I, churches, a church, that church, is to be sort of, if you would, the outposts of what it looks like when heaven and earth come together. So that when people look at the church, they can look at the church and say, ah, that's what it looks like for a people to be governed by Yahweh. Forgiveness, love, generosity, People take care of each other. This is one of the reasons why Paul is actually going to do this a little bit later. There are ways in which we've got to be alert. We've got to be aware. Because the tendency is, is to constantly slip into a state of denial. And then oftentimes we begin to adopt the typical default mode of the culture, which is unforgiveness, which is hatred, which is bad attitude, which is sort of an us versus them type of an idea, this, which is oftentimes we want to marginalize those that are not like us. And this is the culture. This is, I mean, we've lived in this since we were, what, like fourth grade? Right? I mean, you can remember when you were a little kid, like all the good-looking kids hung out with all the good-looking kids. Like all the kids that were like kind of skaters, like hung out with the skaters. Uh, all the surfers hung out with surfers. They never really wanted to kind of hang out with anybody that had a sponge or boogie boarded. Skaters are always like the cool people. They're like, I don't want to hang out with people that inline skate, rollerblade, you know, fruit booty, because those guys are weird. Like, that whole thing. You're like, well, that, wait a minute. That's like high school and junior high. Yeah, you're right. We never do that as adults, do we? No, that's the point. We always do that. We just find new classifications. We just find new classifications. What, what God is saying, what Paul is rejoicing in, is that the gospel has come into this world, and what we see, and what Paul is observing, what Paul is writing to, this 
group of people in this area called Ephesus is he's blown away by the fact that God has birthed, God has launched his outpost of new creation there in this great city called Ephesus, which, by the way, was one of the greatest, most spectacular cities in the ancient world. It's actually situated in what's known as modern-day Turkey. And so this was an unbelievably large city. And not only that, it actually was the home of a, of a huge uh, temple to uh, a goddess by the name of Diana or Artemis, known by different names, but the same Greek god. And so uh, it was a huge destination place for people coming, bringing in massive, large amounts of money to the temple there in Ephesus. In other words, if you want to put it this way, this city was massively overpopulated with Gentiles. And Paul was a Jew. Now that might not strike you as a stark contrast at first, but the reality is for Paul being a Jew, he was trained for the most part to hate the kids on the other side of the track. Those happened to be the Gentiles for him. Because they were filthy, they were dirty, they didn't believe in God, they worshipped these false demigods and gods and they gave their money and their time and their food away and they slept around and they had bad moral sexual ethics and they didn't eat the right kinds of food and they didn't wear the right kinds of clothes and they didn't study the right types of books and have the right type of theological understanding. And so Paul was brought up from a very young age to despise those. And what Paul is doing to writing this letter to this group of Gentile people is he's blown away because he calls them, you guys are my brothers. So what we see here is that humanity is really coming alive, person at a time, which ultimately leads to society coming alive. So creation coming alive, Humanity coming alive and then society coming alive. What I mean by society is the social structure that we have around us in which we move and live and have our being. In other words, the relationships that we have, whether it be husband and wife, parents and children, uh, employer and employee, or slave and master, as Paul alludes to, or ethnicity and ethnicity. Society, that's what I'm talking about. Paul is saying what he's watching as the gospel begins to penetrate into this largely un-Jewish, non-Jewish world is the gospel is bringing to life a brand new society, a brand new humanity. Society is literally coming to life. And Paul is absolutely blown away by this. And within this, we'll see four specific things and we'll unpack these very quickly. First of all, Paul points out in the most unbelievable way that Jew and Gentile are coming together. I already alluded to this with regard to Paul, but Paul is absolutely taken up with amazement by the fact that Jew and Gentile, who were once formerly enemies of each other, are actually now coming together. So if you can think of it this way, in a Bible study or in a church or a family or wherever they would meet, synagogue, you have former enemies sitting at the same table eating a meal, dipping their bread in the same sop, sauces. All right, sop is just code for sausage. Anybody been to Jaffa? You guys like Jaffa? Jaffa Cafe? Not Jaffa, the city. Like, one of my favorite restaurants. It's awesome. I love sauces. If you know anything about me, you know that I'm like, I'm a sauce guy. I love lots of sauces. Salsa, I love salsa. I drink salsa. <laughs> in those ancient days, you would have bread, like pita bread, and you would dip it in the sauce. And so the idea of, you know, and they double dip back then, which, by the way, you're just like, ew, that's gross. Like, 
they didn't think it was gross. It was just part of life, you know, drink off the same cup, you know. It's just that, that was like the, the way they did it. So if you're a Jew, clean, you don't eat pork, you observe certain ceremonial laws, the last thing that you would ever do is in any way, shape, or form associate with a dirty Gentile who you don't know where and what he ate last. He's like coming in and eating pork rinds. You're like, that guy's nasty. Like, like the point is, is that here they are sitting at a table sharing the same meal. Why? Because what Paul uses over and over again is this phrase, in Christ. God is launching something new. In fact, that phrase, in Christ, appears 37 times throughout the entire book of Ephesians. This is, the, this is a mega theme throughout the entire book. And this is not just some sort of freak, weird ecumenicism of just trying to figure out a way to get your life together and work it all out. This is, this is Paul saying there is no form of unity or coming together outside of Christ. Paul perhaps could even put it this way. There's been many different ways to try and to attempt it. And it does not work. But in Christ, it works. I mean, we live in a culture in a lot of ways where, you know, we live, you know, obviously I, I think most would agree, uh, that we live in an unbelievable form of governmental structure. I mean, democracy works. It's beautiful when, when it works. It's far better than, you know, fascism. It's far better than having some sort of a, you know, a tyrant at the helm. It's far better than having some dude that's just a crazed maniac that just wants to accumulate and acquire, and yet he uses every person in there to kind of begin to build underneath him his pyramid of power and might, which everybody's just simply disposable and expendable. So we live in a culture in a lot of ways where it's easy for us to look at others and be like, well, they're you know, messed up. But the reality is, is that every form of culture and government has its form of breakdown. If you look at sort of the peace that oftentimes society and culture portrays, it's not a real genuine peace. It's a fabricated peace. It's and perhaps more uh, specifically said, it's a, it's a forced peace. So in other words, cultures and societies may have some semblance of peace, but in reality, if you were to take off the external forces that are keeping it suppressed, what you would have is chaos. And what Paul is saying, he's like, I'm absolutely blown away because Every time I think of you, my Ephesian friends, you want to be in each other's lives. You're not forced to. It's not like, you know, some religious leader saying, no, you must come, otherwise you will lose your salvation. You will go to hell if you don't come to church. Paul's saying, you guys want to be with each other. Jew and Gentile wants to hang out. It'd be equivalent to, like, back in the 60s, blacks wanted to hang out with whites in the South. It'd be like in modern-day Israel, uh, Palestinians and Jews wanting to sit down and eat a meal with each other, not in some superficial way, but in a way in which they're saying, hey, look, let's figure out ways to help each other out. Let's work together. Let's pull resources. Let's share our ideas so that we can make our lives better. It's so radical. And so what Paul is saying is that God is doing something profound, and it's seen through the Gentile and the Jewish coming together around the Lord's Supper, meeting together, because in Christ, what he's doing is he's breaking down these barriers, these walls that were and have been erected, that have been set up. And again, I would say this is the culture in which we live in, in which all of these walls are set up. 
you and I oftentimes do it ourselves. We might not really even be aware of the fact that we do it. But what we typically do is we oftentimes find people that are just like us. And we gravitate towards them. People maybe that have the same ethnicity as us. People that might maybe have the same type of likes or dislikes with regard to sports. Or people that share the same team that we are really into. Like anybody else who's not on that same team or not part of that same club, we sort of diss them or disrespect them. We push them away. We speak negatively about them. Sometimes it may just be a jest or joking, but in our heart of hearts, we, we really truly feel that maybe to some degree we're, we're actually a little bit better than them because we've seen things differently and they're ignorant, not very smart, not very intuitive. And we do that even with people that look good, people that have just naturally, they're beautiful people. And so the tendency is, is that we live in a society that's fractured, that's broken. And so we are always sometimes running into these moments of feeling as we're the outsider. So if you're not pretty, if you're not fitting into a figure that looks good, you feel as if you're the outsider to those that are absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. If you're somebody that's, you know, not very smart, if you're hanging out with a bunch of people that are like coders and programmers and you're like, I feel really stupid, I don't really want to hang out with them. If you're somebody that is not very artistic or talented in certain ways of art, hanging out with people that are very artistic and very talented, you want to run from them because you feel like you're ousted, you're an outsider. But here's what the gospel says. All can come to that table. A new society has been launched, a new humanity, and it's all in Christ. Paul's blown away by this. I'm going to go through these last few ones really quickly and I'm finished. He also points out that husband and wife, Ephesians chapter 5, he uh, jumps into husband and wife and he says, husband and wives, they come together. Whereas you'd imagine, first century, uh, perhaps it was a very uh, paternal, uh, a male-dominated type of a culture and society. And uh, within that, obviously, men sometimes perhaps uh, abused their role within the home. And uh, disrespected their spouses and uh, treated them oftentimes more like property as opposed to a bride. And here's what Paul's saying in all of Ephesians chapter uh, 5. is like, husbands, love your wives. This is absolutely radical. You know what he's doing? He's saying your wife is not just a piece of property. She's a human being who bears God's image. You know what he's doing? He's raising the dignity value from somebody which culture says, no, 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 she's just property. She's property. She's, she's, she's a sex object. That's all she is. You can use her anytime you need something to eat. She'll make you a meal. You can use her anytime you're feeling a little bit lonely. She's just a sex object. You can then disrespect her any other time. Paul's saying, no, no, no. She is beautiful in Christ. And men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Natural tendency within the former system with, of disrespect and dishonor is for a woman to be nothing but hurt and shamed and wounded and full of resentment. There is nothing uniting about that. So when the man wants to have sex, the woman wants to flee or stab a knife in his back. That is not coming together. That is dividing. And Paul's saying, in the gospel, in Christ, God is bringing together these things by a whole new law, law of love. Uh, thirdly, children and parents. Again, you get the idea that perhaps uh, parents can just simply view their kids as just simply uh, mere commodities or maybe even liabilities. Uh, just, you know, something that you got to deal with. Maybe they're just, you know, let's have more kids. 
honey so that we can have more, you know, of a chain to milk our cows or to mow our lawns or to make money or whatever the case is. But Paul said, no, no, no. In Christ, husbands, dads, moms, love your kids. Kids, don't disrespect your parents. Obey them. He's literally reprogramming a new society in Christ. Finally, slaves and masters, they come together. So this is what God's up to. We see that creation is coming alive. We see that humanity is coming to life. We see that society is coming alive. And all of it is because God is bringing things together in Christ. Bringing life out of all of these institutions and situations where there was nothing but death and decay that were reigning prior. And if you're really honest with yourself, and if you're not living in a status of decay or denial, you recognize that perhaps our lives have elements of decay and death in them. And the call of the gospel is to recognize that, to come to God. Paul says, this challenge will not be easy. Because beneath the world in which we live in is a spiritual world, a dark destructive spiritual world. And this is what Paul says in a passage that most of us are probably familiar with in Ephesians chapter 6, where he warns them. He warns these Ephesian believers. He says, look, as you guys live forth as a new humanity, embodying the life of God in your lives, in the place of death and decay, you've got to be always alert, be on guard, because there are forces that threaten to undo and undermine all of God's good creation." Paul says, these forces are at work, so, you know, put on the whole armor of God is what Paul says. So the final thing that I want to end with is Paul the Apostle as sort of a case study of all this. And I want to basically finish where the story begins. So Paul, if you know anything about him, Paul was a Jew. In fact, if you, you can write these down, read them a little bit later. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Acts chapter 7, verses 59, all the way through on Acts chapter 8, verse 3. And then, really, in the climactic part of Paul's life, which uh, uh, book of Acts chapter 9, Paul tells a story, or the story, story is told about Paul, where Paul, prior to meeting Jesus, prior to his conversion, Paul was living in a status of death and decay. He didn't know it, though, because he was blind. He didn't see it. Perhaps maybe there were moments in which maybe it came to light. But Paul, like us, perhaps lived in a perennial status of denial. Whenever we sense death and decay coming from us, we just deny it. That's the worst thing that you can do. Because when denial overtakes your life, there is, you remove any prospect of hope. Any prospect of change that God delivers. So Paul was this guy that was out to destroy and kill Christians. He hated Christians. And he no doubt had prejudices against Gentiles. And Paul, if you were to look at it this way, sort of in summary, Paul would be sort of a quintessential example of what we might describe or define in today's context as an Al-Qaeda terrorist. So Paul was. He was going out to kill people. If bombs were invented back then, probably Paul would have, you know, figured out ways to blow people up. Paul was out to destroy. Until the book of Acts chapter 9, where something happens, Jesus comes to him. Jesus reaches out to Paul and changes his life. And so what Paul would have looked at prior to meeting Jesus, uh, filled with hatred and anger towards anybody that was not part of his little 
very unique and narrow sect of life, Paul would have just simply consigned them to hell and destroyed them himself with his own hands until he met Jesus. And his world began to grow. And he changed. So I want to read book of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul starts out and he says, Paul, an apostle, which is one who's sent out, and I think there's some sort of contrast here perhaps between this and Acts chapter 9 where Paul was sent out from religious authorities to go out and kill. In this sense, Paul is sent out by Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul says to these former pagan, idol-worshiping Gentiles that Paul was trained from his youth to hate and abhor. He says, you guys are faithful saints, God, and I love you, and I will give my life in pouring out the message of the gospel to you. God changed Paul. He transformed him. Because Paul was able to identify that the kingdom that he was living in prior to Jesus pulling him out was a kingdom of decay and death. A kingdom that just perpetuated ideas, perhaps even lies in his mind that kept him bound. But once he met Jesus, he was liberated and set free. And this is the message of the gospel that comes to us today, that we can be set free. That we can be liberated. That God does still take lives that are bound by death and gives them life. But you've got to remove yourself from the denial. And I want to finish in response. I'll dare come on up and we'll finish this song. And I want to really finish with a, with a move to action, a call to action. And the call to action will basically be one that says, I don't want to live in denial. Because you know, when the call of Christ comes and he says, Dead men arise. There needs to be a turning away from that which had formerly kept a person dead. And that recognition, you guys can come on up. That recognition is a call to come out of denial. We call it repentance. That's what repentance is. Repentance says, I refuse to keep bound. I refuse to live in denial. I refuse to stay in this system that's filled with denial or that's filled with decay and death and I want to come to the one who's called me this is what Jesus does he gives us life he takes that which is dead and gives it life he breathes his life into that which is lifeless that's what he calls to us today to respond to so I want to want to call for move to a call of response What I want to do is I want to pray, but when I'm done praying, I want to ask you that if that's you here today, if there is any area in your life that you would look at that's basically been cluttered with death and decay, and if you sense or hear the call of God today to arise, I'm going to ask you to arise, to stand up where you're at. Maybe it's that there's death in your relationship with God. You're not a Christian. You don't know God. Maybe... You thought that you were a Christian, but for some reason, in reality, all you've really had was religion. You've had the religious trappings that keep you 
thinking you're a Christian, meaning you have a Bible, you read, your mom and dad were Christians, you were brought up maybe in a Christian home, you're surrounded by a bunch of Christians, the social networks that you find yourself involved in, they're all Christian, the music you might even have in your car, it's all Christian, but you, you're not a Christian. The love of God is not something that's been shed abroad in your heart. God is just sort of an addition to your life. He's sort of a supplement. He's not your life. The call from God today is to not live in denial, but to arise, to respond to his call. Maybe there's death in relationships. Maybe that death is coming to those relationships because of you. Because death's been reigning in you. Therefore, we perpetuate death. Death perpetuates death. We need to meet the living God who calls us to rise, to give us life. I'm going to pray. If that's you, I'm just going to ask you to stand up right where you're at. This is hard. And again, some of us right now, we, we immediately just uh, we're, we move into denial mode. That's not me. I'm fine. I'm fine. I want to stand. I want to be seen. Look, at the end of the day, guys, the church is comprised of a bunch of broken people that have just been rescued. My challenge to you is don't perpetuate the denial. That will trap you and will destroy you and will keep you in the place of deadness. When simultaneously Jesus is calling you to say, have life. Let life go through you between you and me. Let life go through you to other relationships that are fractured or broken or in various stages, stages of death and decay. Let life change you that comes from me in Christ.